I'm in Max, Max, Max. You are listening to Happy Jack's RPG Podcast. I'm in Max, 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 Pursuing the RPG hobby with reckless abandon. Why, hello, and welcome to Season 26, Episode 16 of Happy Jack's RPG Podcast. My name is Stu. Your turn. Hi, uh, I'm Emily Vanderwerf. Uh, and I'm Rev. And I don't, I, have either of you been on the Friday Night Podcast before? My first time. First yeah, time. Yeah, negative. Well, thank you for, for, for joining me. Um, Tappy was supposed to be on, but he hurt his back, so he won't be on. Um, in this episode of Happy Jack's RPG Podcast, Lee writes in about keeping secrets from other players. Ed from Minnesota sends us a message about house ruling. And Jeff asks about gaming in the land of COVID-19. But first, if you'd like to email us, you can email us at happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. That's happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. We have a forum, happyjacksforum.com. That's happyjacksforum.com. We're on the social medias, happyjacksrpg, all one word, all lowercase, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and MeWe. And we also stream the show live on Friday nights. You can watch the show at 7.14 p.m. Pacific Time, Pacific Daylight Time right now, at happyjacks.org slash live. That's happyjacks.org slash live. Now, because this is a Friday night show and you both are new, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot. Emily, who are you and what do you do that makes you famous? I am Emily Vanderwerf, uh, and I am the critic at large at Vox.com. And um, I, I, I'm not famous, but I'm like semi well known for that. Excellent. Excellent. And Rev, what do you do and what, what it is that makes you famous? Uh, I'm Rev. I'm the host and GM of The Crit Show. Uh, it's an actual play podcast where we play Monster of the Week and other Powered by the Apocalypse games. Uh, and then our production company makes Let's Plays for newly launching games or games that are out on Kickstarter. Uh, so, for example, we made the Kickstarter for Jason's game, Demigods, and we also made the Kickstarter for, or the Kickstarter, the uh, Let's Play for Kimmy's game, uh, Dekuma. Excellent. Awesome. Um, and if people want to check out the show, where do they go to find it? Uh, you can find us anywhere you download podcasts, or you can just go to thecritshowpodcast.com. The, is it the, the Crit Show? That's the title of the show. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming Thanks. in. Thanks. All right. Uh, since, since you're both new, I always let the new people read the first first emails. So, <laughs> who would like All to right. read "Keeping secre- Secrets from Other Players" from Lee? Uh, I will. Okay. Uh, hey there, Jackers. My second ever email to you. Uh, this time about a Pathfinder character and a very dull resolution to a character secret. I'm ten levels into a Pathfinder adventure path with a group, uh, some of whom I've been playing with for decades. Our group, many sessions ago, discovered that what we thought uh, to be a magic item giving a bonus to intelligence, so they passed it on to my wizard PC, uh, except we missed the curse and my intelligence score dropped by a quarter with a further penalty to all my knowledge skill rolls, and the item text read, more or less, that I would be agreeable to the dumbest of plans. Uh, The GM and I thought this would be amusing to play with, and we didn't tell any of the other players. Cool, I can do this. I thought I'll agree to any stupid idea, and sooner or later, they will notice that my roles, no things, will be terrible. Except that in this group, I guess dumb ideas are par for the course, so my suggestions or agreements didn't get noticed, and my dice apparently suck all the time, so no one picked up that I wouldn't know anything. And at least one of the PCs covered all the skills I had, so they covered my ignorance and no one paid attention since there was no group failure. Uh, So this went on for months. (laughs) I know I thought 
when I hit the level that I can't cast 5th level spells, they'll figure it out. Nope. The GM and I puzzled out, uh, puzzled over this, but couldn't think of any way to let them know uh, since we suspected the immediate reaction would be out of character. We cast a spell, and it's all gone, and that sounded boring. Eventually, I was absent for a session, and the player running my wizard looked over the character sheet and said, Oh, why is there a reduction to his intelligence score? The GM explained, and after a few minutes to consult the book, the reaction was indeed, we cast a spell, and it's all gone, and yup, it was boring. Uh, Lesson to me, I guess the players should be kept abreast of in-character secrets and cursed items, so all can play along, or just skin them if no one is sure that the player group won't play along. Thoughts? How would you have handled this differently? Lee, a track on the forums... Uh, and then this is an asterisk from very early on. Uh, if it matters, my first email was two years ago about prisoner executions leading to PvP and player walkouts in a Twilight 2000 game. I think I remember that. Okay. <laughs> so, so now, now, uh, uh, what, uh, Emily, what's your gaming background? Are you do you mostly play PBTA stuff, or do you uh, kind of across the board? Or I have I have never played Pathfinder. I've played a fair amount of D and D. Which I understand, you know, I know is vaguely similar, um, but I, I mostly play story games, PBTA, okay, um, you know that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I, I'm familiar enough with what we're talking about to know. What's okay, going on, so. well, the, the the reason I, I asked that because if both of you heavily play PBTA games, and I've only played once or twice, um, it seems like it's mo- the the sort of the collaborative nature of the game makes it necessary that everyone at the table kind of knows what's going on in a meta sense am i correct yeah. am i correct in assuming that yeah i i i i my current game i'm playing which is not pbta but is, is sort of vaguely related uh through happy jacks at great american witch um, i'm trying to keep a secret from the other players but the, the gm is in on it mm-hmm. um, i assume it will come out at some point but it's more of a story secret it's not like a this is a secret about my stats um and uh, yeah, I, I, it's a very different situation from what the player is talking about here. Right, but I, I guess because um, in, in it seems to me in a lot of story games, uh, having having secrets at the table is kind of contrary to the spirit of the game. Am I am I mm-hmm. right in assuming that? Do you guys do you guys agree with that statement, or am I all all wet? Um, the only kind of counter side to that I would say is that if it is a secret that you have with the game master and it you have you know the appropriate breadcrumbs if it's leading to a story reveal um, you know because those those story games are based around making sure that we all are working to build this story and if it makes for a good reveal for the other player something they weren't expecting that's I think the time that, that secrets are okay but the keeper for that game or the game master needs to make sure they're setting the proper breadcrumbs so the players have a chance to find it and there are a couple PBTA games, mostly like being play tested, where one of the mechanics is everybody has a secret they're supposed to keep, but when you reveal it, then you get sort of a, a you get some sort of event or something happens that is beneficial to your character. But you have to reveal it at an opportune time. So uh, I, I played one at a con recently that was um, I, I, oh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's a sort of a, a kung fu uh, wushan. Uh, set story and it was really like fun and we all had secrets that we were keeping from each other and then they were revealed at one point it was very exciting mm-hmm. now the so 
No, okay. What 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 do you guys think? How would you have handled this? This assuming that you were this player or the GM, how do you think he could have handled this better so that it could have become that amazing reveal? That you know, the thing is, as a GM, I've come up with what I thought were great plot twists that would be an amazing reveal for a game that just fall flat. Mm. It, it, it's one of those things that. Once in a while it works, but m- probably 90% of the time it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. It's that sort of thing. But if you were in this situation, either as the player or the GM, how do you think you would have handled this differently so that it it, it, it did end up being that sort of dramatic reveal rather than just, when oh, we cast this and make it go away? Mm. Yeah. You know, in I've, I've been in a similar situation in Pathfinder, except it was a, a charisma curse. Um, and so I think that a lot of times, like the subtle things when you're, you know, role playing at the table that you think the other characters, the other players might notice, you almost have to turn that dial up by like double, you know, so the little things like, oh, just agreeing with bad ideas, it's got to be something big enough that, that points to that huge loss. So if you're the, the super charismatic bard and you're taking the, the charisma negative as just not knowing how to how to to socially deal with a situation or doing you know your songs badly or whatever and and really painting that moment so that the characters or rather i guess really the players in this instance take a moment to think like well why is this oh that is weird why is this they're one they're pointing this out and two it's so unusual compared to what i've seen you do before yeah yeah i think I do think that the impetus here to make the reveal big is kind of on the GM, but at the same time, I think that it's it's tricky to do that because, again, if there's such an obvious solution to it, as is suggested in this email, then, you know, the reveal of it, which I think at the very least you want to be amusing, like... Yeah, at a certain point in any storytelling, when the reveal gets dragged out so long, eventually it's just like anticlimactic. So it's really the trick of the GM finding a way to lead the players to that revelation at a time when it's going to be most dramatically satisfying. And like that's hard to do in a game like 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 D and D or Pathfinder, where it is all kind of in response to roles and things like that. But I do think that it is sort of on it sort of is the GM's. Um, you know, sort of his responsibility to come up with a way to make that as satisfying as possible. On the other hand, like I was greatly amused by this email. So, um, you know, someone got some enjoyment out of it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I was trying to think, think to myself as if I was the GM in the situation, if there are things that I could do to help reinforce and sort of maybe subtly alert the players to the fact that something is wrong and I was wondering if you could and, and this would take a lot of work on the GM's part I think but if the GM decided hey you know what I'm going to like do the whole show rather than tell thing and have the the party kind of separate when they go to town or whatever and the mage goes off and meets someone and then later when the parties are back together whoever this NPC is that the mage met comes back and talks to him like he's a moron Mm-hmm. Talk to him. Like, would you like something to eat? Would you like me to cut your meat for you? Are you okay? Is your are you comfortable? You know, just like, just really talk to him like as a child. And I thought that something like that might cause the players to go, "Why is this person acting like that?" But you'd have to contrast that with that same NPC treating all the rest of the players like they're normal people. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. But I think if you could come up with subtle ways of like that 
because one of the things that I think causes a big reveal to actually have that sort of dramatic reaction from the players isn't necessarily just the reveal itself, but it's all of the little clues that suddenly all fit together and suddenly they realize, oh, all this stuff that didn't make sense to me now suddenly makes sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, but those have to be memorable enough for the players to remember them and to have, be mindful of them when that big reveal comes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that there's little mechanical things specifically in, in like Pathfinder that you could do too with if there's any character around. I realize that we're talking about the wizard, so there may not be another character doing it. But if you are... You've got someone who's sensing evil. You've got someone who's detecting magic that you might give them the opportunity to to sense that curse coming from that player, that there's there's something off about them. You can't quite tell, but there's there's something not right. You've been around them for years, and, and you've seen them this way. The shade is off. And just to give them that little something to maybe get the group investigating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it also is sort of like a situation where you and the GM maybe want to talk about like, well, how long do we want to wait before we just like figure out the most obvious way to drop this particular anvil? And I think the longer you wait, the harder it is to make it really pay off. So if you have a secret like this, I do wonder if it shouldn't be revealed, you know, within a few sessions. Yeah, I agree. Have either of you read, there's a book called Game Night. Mm. And the guy who wrote it used to do a blog called critical-miss.com. I don't even think that website's up anymore. But he his his whole blog was nothing but just horrible, terrible gaming stories. <laughs> just awful. Just because they were teenagers and they and he would sit and write out what happened in their games. Well, he ended up writing a novel, this novel called Game Night. And I guess the conceit of the novel is that there is um, players, or, well, there, there's, it's a fantasy world, and there's things happening, but every so often a chapter will happen where it's like these gods are, are sitting around playing a role-playing game, and they're controlling the characters in the, in the adventure, in the novel itself, right? And one of the things that he put in this, and you can tell that he did, he did this for the same reason it's I find it kind of dangerous to try to come up with this big like long play secret and it, that long play secret happened in the in the novel something very similar to the things I used to try to do when I was a teenager and then it switches back to the other to the the um the deities who are playing the game they're like oh that's the lamest thing ever and all the players get mad at them <laughs> but it, it, it's a very it's a very it, if you've played a lot of role playing games especially if you played role playing games when you were young and stupid it's it's a pretty funny novel but that reminds me because that, that uh, we, young gms always try to do that i'm going to have this massive twist in the game somewhere at the end and it's just going to turn everything on its head and it almost never works it just doesn't Especially like a campaign long twist like that. I mean, I yeah. the, the best reaction I've gotten to something like that. I ran a campaign that was a started out in D and D fourth edition and it bounced around to a couple other systems. And uh, in the game, uh, the players uh, met the, the the sort of monarch. He was a duke, but he was the, sort of like the protector of this area. And they'd met him a couple of times, and I had decided 
like in the first session, but during my prep, that he was actually a gold dragon mm. and had been masquerading as a human for about 15 or 16 generations, always being the heir of the Duke and basically changing his, his appearance, making himself look older gradually, things like that. And the players, they got little bits and clues and hints here and there during the course of the campaign. They never thought anything of it. And it wasn't until years later, it was only like a few, three or four months ago, we were, have, we were here doing the Friday night show, and I mentioned to him, oh yeah, well, the Duke of Eldamy was a gold dragon. And Kimmy's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's, you know, a decade after that game happened. So that's the, probably the best reaction I got from that, and that wasn't that table. So I don't know if that counts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's great. At that point, the reveal has lasted so long that it like bounces right back around to being excited. So. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, thank you, Lee, for the email. Uh, unless anyone has anything else on this. No. Great. no? Good. Okay. Uh, next email: House ruling from Ed in Minnesota. You want to read this one, Emily? Absolutely. Uh, happy Jacks to you all. I was reflecting back on a badly misspent youth, gaming until 4 a.m. multiple days per week, summers spent locked in basements pretending to raid dungeons and slaughter or be slaughtered by monsters galore. And one thing I've noticed about how I've changed as a GM is my approach to how I use rules. This is a work in progress, so bear with me. Rules provide a general system or systems to help people decide how something should work. So in a system like D&D, rolling higher on the dice is always better. High on two hit, high on damage. Yes, Tappy, I know an elf has a one in six chance of finding secret doors in basic D&D. This could be compared to hero slash gurps. Yeah, yeah, where rolling low is good to hit, but rolling high is good for damage. A little more confusing, but pretty easy to grok overall. Now compare this to FFG games, where the all-knowing chicken entrails turn a fairly simple concept of rolling dice into an eye-gouging experience in madness and insanity. Squinting at dice on table, you hit the alien, but your leg gets gnawed on by a diseased nerf, trademark Princess Leia, which causes you to jump out into the open, waving your arms and screaming loudly, and you wet your pants, I think. Now that I am older, I appreciate elegance, be it in a one-page easy reference for combat rules that isn't in six-point font, or only having a few simple mechanics that can be used over and over again in the system. I have found that once I have an understanding of how that system works, I try very hard to utilize it, or as close to it as possible, in order to keep it easy for others to understand. And because I'm lazy. Uh, I mean, busy. Way too busy to do anything like write this email. So moving forward in my D&D game, which is on its second cast and three years of real-time play... I have players that are used to the D20 mechanic, higher is better, the higher is better for damage mechanic, hit points are better the higher they are, and be afraid as they get lower from damage, and the twist, which is a fatigue system, which gets worse as you go up the chart. To be consistent, it should start at 5 and drop to 0, but I'm not here to solve the world's problems. Instead, when I wanted to introduce the L5R mechanic for taint, I created a fatigue, uh, I mean taint chart that matches up with fatigue for how it works, and told them that it doesn't recover over time. Instead of coming up with something completely new, I took a mechanic that existed that kind of did what I wanted and used it to get the feel of the mechanic I wanted. And that finally brings me to my point, drink, and to my second point, which is to ask if when you house rule something, do you create from scratch or do you steal, uh, borrow existing mechanics in the system as much as possible to keep it consistent, looking for how you modify your games, 
or if you play Raw, and what is your thought process behind your choice? Thank you, Ed from Minnesota, now trapped in a postage stamp home in Florida. P.S. With everyone stuck at home drinking and alcohol only in essential business in some states, but on hand sanitizer, what do you think the chances are of us being able to have a toast in six months of putting all this behind us with something stronger than ginger ale horror? P.P.S. Now that you have that in mind, drink. House ruling. I'm just going to admit a lot of that made no sense to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I got, I got, I got about, it got about half of it, but uh, I'd love to hear what you two have to say. Oh, well, let me explain uh, to those who don't know. <clears throat> L5R, Legend of the Five Rings. There's a mechanic for taint, and taint is sort of the dark influence on the world. And uh, certain things will cause you. And it's almost like a disease. It's like a supernatural disease. And once you get it, it's almost impossible to get rid of. And it will eventually, you will succumb to it and be, end up becoming like a zombie or a monster or something. <clears throat> so, I don't quite know, understand how he would use that mechanic for fatigue. Because it seems to me like fatigue does go away. And in, in L5R, taint really never goes away. All you can do is slow it down. Um, as far as house ruling goes, I don't house rule that much anymore because, I mean, well... We house rule in that we will often do the rules wrong. I suppose you could call that house ruling. <clears throat> but we tr- attempt, at least attempt, to play the games, usually, especially if it's a, a newer or unfamiliar system, we try to play them rules as written. Because a lot of people use actual plays to learn how to play games. I mean, that's, that's become a, a pretty common way. You go buy a new role-playing game, you go watch a couple actual plays to kind of get a feel of how the mechanics work. Because sometimes reading it just doesn't do it, you know. <clears throat> so I don't do it very often. Uh, the only time I can think that we that I well, I, I'm redesigning Moment of Truth right now, and so I some of some of the mechanics I've come up with are of my own creation, and some of them are things that I like out of other game systems that I'm kind of tweaking or changing to suit the dice mechanics that I have. Um, so it's kind of a combination of both, really. I think for me. Yeah, I mean specifically with. A lot of the games that we played lately, you know, Fate or Powered by the Apocalypse, we don't do a lot of house rules, but we do make house moves, um, you know, because they a lot of the systems will tell you how you can make a custom move. Um, you make them for the creatures that they're fighting, um, and I like to make them for the players or the environment. If that's the case, you know, you really are borrowing from what already exists because you want to make sure that it's not so much more powerful or so much weaker than something else that another player is able to do. Um, And so I try to balance it to the system or to the story arc that they're in. Um, And in that case, I'll I'll talk to one or two people and and say, hey, if this was a move and you heard the other moves in this thing, does this seem like it's it's too far left field? Because it seems right to me. How does that power balance work for you? Um, And so I think that's the nice thing about some of the games that we play is that it kind of gives you a mechanic. Like, hey, if you want to do this, here's how. Um, so it's a it's a good mix of borrowing plus creating something new. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I once played uh, I, ra- I ran a fate game at a strategic con event many years ago, and um, I- I'm friends with Mike Olson, who's one of the uh, designers of the most recent fate edition. Uh, and he was playing at the table with me, and he kept texting me like new like ways to tweak the rules to make that particular game more interesting. So I think you can do house rules if the designer is texting them to you. I think that's always true. I think that's always okay. So. 
We had a, on our season finale of season one, we had Michael Sands, the creator of Monster of the Week. He was on as a guest. And we had a house rule that we had in, in place by that time. And at one point I turned to him and said, hey, roll this. And then I realized who I was saying it to. And he went, no, I like it. That's good. I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Trying not to freak out. Yeah, I think uh, it's... There's a lot of... I mean, I've been tr- trying to work on sort of a, a, a converted house-ruled version of D&D. Because people love to watch actual plays of D&D. They're probably the most consumed things out there. And But I just... There's things about the system that just really annoy me. And I've spent hours and hours and hours trying to come up with an easy way to sort of convert it to cr- make it into a system that doesn't annoy me as much. And the problem I always run into is the power creep and how to maintain those numbers while still having leveling up. Because that's one of the major conceits of D&D is leveling up and becoming godlike and all of that. And uh, if you nerf leveling, I think a lot of the the things that make people interested in playing D&D kind of go away. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been my biggest challenge with that, <clears throat> is trying to figure out a way to fix the things that I don't like and still have leveling be as meaningful as it as it was before. Because it's always meaningful for mages because they get new spells and clerics and stuff like that. But for fighters, uh, they're really just looking to get make like soak more damage or do more damage, you know? So, and, that, and that's really... Get, I'm getting kind of getting into the little fiddly bits here, but that's kind of the source of a lot of a lot of the stuff about D&D that I don't like is the fact that combats take exponentially long the higher level you get because it's an attrition game. You yeah. know what I mean? So, <clears throat> but I don't know if we answered your question, but we tried. I think I think <laughs> the, the I think the question is sort of like when you're applying a house rule, do you try to keep it a holistic experience? Do you try to keep it within the spirit of the game or do you just do whatever's most fun for the table and unless you're playing with the designer or you're playing like you're playing to teach people how it works on an actual play or something like that, just do whatever's most fun. You know, I think that's always the best call. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, if you're, if you're introducing something and the players are already kind of familiar with the system anyway, it's not a big deal. I, I wouldn't introduce house rules that aren't sort of consistent with the rest of the mechanics initially. If you're have a table full of players that aren't, that aren't experienced, that may just cause more confusion. So, all right, Ed from Minnesota, thank you for the email. We appreciate it. Uh, game prep in lockdown. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, this is from Jeff, uh, dear Stu, and the Friday night evening, Friday evening douche crew. Hope y'all are doing well during this crazy during these crazy times. This is Jeff from Queens, and I made the quote unquote mistake. I like how he wrote out quote unquote and then put quotes around the word mistake. Thank you. Thank you. Because you've you've obviously been listening to how I read um, (laughs) of asking all my shelter in place friends if they'd be interested in playing some RPGs. Several responses later, I am now running one shots and short campaigns two to three times a week for several groups with a mix of gaming veterans and newbies, in addition to my actual regular campaign, a superhero game that's been running for about four years now. This has made me become very concerned with streamlining my game prep and becoming as efficient as possible. My biggest problem is that I'm 
such an over-prepper leading to, up to each game. But when the game time comes, it mostly turns into improv anyway. I'm trying to give my players maximum freedom, and I've really honed a lot of improv skills based on the advice from this show over the last decade. Yeah, I've been listening to you a-holes for that long. Uh, that's almost the whole run. Uh, not to mention... I've recently fallen in love with Roll20, and I've been designing the hell out of maps for the set-piece action sequences I know are going to come up in my games. <clears throat> that being said, we all know how unpredict unpredictable players can be. I prepped NPC motivations, histories, and personalities, but in the one shot I just finished, my players steamrolled through, broke everything in sight, in the most wonderful way possible and didn't even bother with investigating the villains motivations because they were having so much fun playing their characters and doing what their characters would do anyway Excuse, hold on a second sorry um they loved every second of it even if the story made less sense without knowing why the villains were doing what they were doing meanwhile my regular superhero campaign has an extremely deep mythology to it that's been expanded, expanding for years, and it just keeps getting more and more complex with each session. There's such a, such a proactive group that I have to keep, keep up a balancing act of improvising heavily, but still keeping things internally consistent. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, it's also <laughs> extremely rewarding when we make weird past plot points make sense with new developments improvised at the table. That is a magical thing when that happens. Uh, so asking for advice, what are your strategies for balancing out how much pre-work you have to do versus how much you do on the fly at the table? How do you minimize prep time as much as possible, but still walk into each game feeling like you've got a handle on where you think it's going to go, especially when you're working with a new group and don't and don't know all their gaming dynamics yet. If it helps, um, I'd also like to point out I'm running three different rule sets: Savage Worlds, Fate. Oh, sorry, so Savage Worlds. Yeah, Fate. Yeah, and D and D. Yeah, also. Um, he wrote that in lowercase, not all caps. Uh, thanks for the advice uh, you've given me over the years. I hope you and your loved ones are doing well in this weird coronavirus time. Or if you are reading this after society's gone back to normal-ish, or collapsed entirely. Uh, <laughs> man, what a crazy few, man! What a crazy few years those last couple of months were, huh? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, sincerely, Jeff. P.S. As always. It is important to me that you drink now, you douches. Game prep. How do you? How do you? Especially if you're running multiple games, how do you? How do you do? Manage your game prep so that you're not spending all of your time doing that. And um, how much do you think you need to have when you go into a session? I have thoughts on this, but I'd like to hear what you guys think. I uh, when I run uh, I, because I run a lot of story games, which is emergent storytelling at the table with players. I rarely prep too much. Um, I have when I'm doing something more campaign like, or when I'm doing something at a con and we need to just get up and running. But I always try to prep as little as I possibly can because for me the fun is always finding the space between what I want and what the player wants, and then like bending the story in that direction that's a little easier to do with story games than something like D&D where you kind of need to know at least the high level backstory of everything that's in there um, so I, I do see the argument for being super prepared but in general 
I think it's it's more fun if you know just enough to fake it, and then you let the players help you fill in the details. Yeah, I mean the the prep that they discuss sounds about right to me. Like my response to this email initially was, I think you're you're doing it just right. Um, you know, you're not getting the payoff sometimes when the characters or the players don't find out the machinations of of why your character in this uh, you know one shot was doing what they were doing. But that's why at the end of the game session, you can have the beauty of a montage that, you know, explains what was going on behind the scenes. Um, But, you know, prepping for story games, I agree that it is really just about knowing the NPCs, some locations and their motivations. Now, if I'm prepping something like Pathfinder or an an adventure path, there is more prep that goes into it. But I try to prep it kind of like if anybody, this is such a weird poll, but if anybody is familiar with like Canavacchio's, um, where it was just the outline of a story. You didn't have the story, but you had the major plot points that had to happen. And when they happened out of order, that's okay, because now you can pull this one and shift it up here. And then, oh, this one fell away. Well, it can come back later here. And so for something that is more in-depth ongoing, I try to have an outline of events, but not an order that they have to happen in, so that as the players kind of go around in this sandbox, um, they'll come across those things. And some of them they may come across too late, and the events may have happened already, I try to keep in mind like a a timeline that everything is moving on. Mm -hmm. I think I realized that because when I, when I prep games, I don't, I don't play a lot of PBTA games or anything like that. Most of the games I play are the traditional RPGs when, and, and there usually is a lot of prep and the prep up front I've discovered is mostly world building. It is coming up with your NPCs, places, uh, and then what I when I because I use OneNote when I when I prep games and one of the tabs I will have is plot elements and when I come up with an interesting idea or a magic item or a, a secret about an NPC or anything like that that like could be an interesting thing to throw in at some point I put it under plot elements and and they I mean well, there's probably ten or twelve things in there right now because I'm running Vampire Fifth Edition right now and there's probably 10 or 15 things in there. And when I do prep prior to the game, what I will normally do is when the game ends, I immediately open up one note and I will write out a synopsis of what happened from my perspective as the GM. Um, here's what the players did. Here's who they were interacting with. Here's what might be the results of it. Things like that. And then <clears throat> I, I will write out two or three events that can happen during the course of the adventure if there's a lull or the players aren't being proactive which is rare um and then if i if i get lost for something i'll go into that plot elements thing and say is there anything interesting in here that they're getting close to that i could throw in here and nine out of ten times there is so um and, and really, I mean, prep for me is like a, it's like it's like a coronavirus curve. It goes up exponentially before the game, and then when the game time hits, it kind of peaks, and then it starts the amount of time I spend starts going down and down and down, and hopefully stays down for a long, long, long time, um, because the players become more proactive as the game develops, and I end up having to do a lot less prep. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Um, I forgot, kind of forgot what his question was. What was his question? Meanwhile, so I'm asking for advice on the strategies and pre-work versus how much to fly at the table. I, I guess we kind of answer that. It's, yeah. I mean, it. 
I, I very rarely I don't write out the what the plot of the story is going to be or what the the plot of the campaign is going to be. I'll, I'll usually have some kind of idea, but I've run games that have had really really good endings where I really had no idea how it was going to end until yeah. a session or two before. Yeah. yeah, because you know, in those moments of the characters or the players talking to each other, they're going to come up with things that are ten times better than what you had planned anyway. Oh, yeah. And so sometimes you can feed from what they're doing to, to add on to the future. And so I think you kind of lose out on that element if you have it too firmly hammered in place. I think that I think the danger of too much prep is always that you get stuck on a thing that you want to see happen and the players aren't heading in that direction and it becomes a frustrating experience for everyone and of course we've all had that happen and like so the 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 thing always and this is true for you know any game system the thing always is to like have your ideas but when a better one comes up at the table be willing to pursue that one and like that's a real skill i think every gm can can learn yeah, I mean, you, you if if you're GM, especially if you're GMing with a proactive table, you got to be able to slay your darlings. You know, what I mean, if you come up mm-hmm. with an idea and it's like, oh, this is going to be awesome, it might, it might not. If they end up going in a different direction, you gotta have to roll with it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Otherwise, they call it railroading. <laughs> so, uh, any any other thoughts on this? No, I mean, the the one thing that they talked about early on, just the idea of, oh, I had this awesome character with this awesome backstory. They were doing this nasty thing. If that one shot does turn into a longer story, then you start just dropping in other events that happened that might lead back to that character. Even if they did defeat them, they could have been, you know, working in multiple pools at the same time so that that backstory might come out and, and get them more interested in why that, you know, specific town was that way. Yeah. I mean... And this is the most obvious thing in the world, but don't forget that there are things you always control within the world, within the story. And I think what Stu said about world building being most of your prep is right. Like, if you were building an internally consistent world and the players are reacting to it however they want, then you will always know where to go next because you'll have an idea of how the world reacts to them. You know, and that, you 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 guys just reminded me of when he's talking in here about when uh, when you're you have to go in after you improv a bunch of stuff in the course of a session, you ha- kind of have to go back and figure out how everything fits into place and how it creates a full story. And it's kind of amazing how often that happens. And you'll go along. And it's like I've got this one little thing that's an inconsistency that I found, and the players realize it's an inconsistency. And as the game goes along, and things all of a sudden, someone will say something or someone will do something, and it's like oh, I just figured out how to make all of this consistent. And it, it reminds me of what, what's the movie uh, Shakespeare in Love when they're talking about mm-hmm. how how the what well, it'll all come together. Why? How? I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> and that that happens GMing a lot, and I I don't know if it's because of that. What the, I mean, we're, we're, we're humans are really good at, at finding patterns. It's one of the reasons that we love conspiracies, and I I think that we're the the the, the human mind is just really good at taking a bunch of disparate things and figuring out how they all fit together into some sort of causal relationship, even if there isn't one. Yeah, you know what I mean. I- 
Yeah, yeah. I, I cover uh, television in my day job, and the writers' rooms in television function a lot like an RPG table. So, like, and those places, you know, they'll have a big thing, and they'll be like, "How does? How are we going to figure this out?" And they just always have faith that they'll figure it out. So, have <laughs> faith in your players. People are really good at coming up with things that make sense collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It really is. It's kind of a magical thing when that happens too. So. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Jeff, for the email. Uh, anything else? Uh, uh, give your website some plugs and stuff like that. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I'm Emily Vanderwerf again. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash TVOTI. My writing is at Vox, and I'm also the co-creator of the podcast Arden, which is at ardenpodcast.com. Uh, and I'm Rev. You can find me on Twitter at Rev DeShane. Uh, you can find The Crit Show, which is an actual play podcast featuring Monster of the Week and other Powered by the Apocalypse games at thecritshowpodcast.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Uh, and then uh, some of you may have heard us on the different Let's Plays that we have created uh, for newly launching games. Excellent. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Thanks for it's having us. And, it's great uh, to be here. And, and come back on again, please. I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, play us out here. I will I will mute you momentarily. Thank you for joining us for season twenty six, episode sixteen of Happy Jackets RPG Podcast. My name is Stu. Hi, I'm Emily. <laughs> I'm Rev. And we will see you next week, Friday at seven uh, something Pacific time. Uh, HappyJacks.org slash live. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of the Angry Folk Media Empire. Bum, 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 bum.